Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much that you care for us. We thank you for the fact that everything we have is by your grace, that we do not earn it, and we thank you that it is by your grace that you give us our gift, our eternal life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start reading at going to start reading at verse 3. We talked about verse 3 last week, but it gives us a little bit of context for this one. For we are, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh if other men think that he has a, whereof he could trust in his flesh, I more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But though what things were gained to me, those I count as loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might obtain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already obtained, either were already perfect, but follow after if that I may apprehend that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count it all, count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Paul starts this out saying that we're to have no confidence in the flesh. All right? Whatever I think I'm doing is worthless. And that's what Paul is get, doing this whole section about. And he says, if any of you think that you are special, you think you are something, something to really brag about, he goes, let me tell you my credentials. <laughs> you know, another place Paul does it is he goes, I don't know why I'm doing this, but you know, I'm going to keep doing this. God forbid that I should do this. And he keeps going on and on on, on his credentials. And so we're going to look at this because he's saying there's nothing good in his flesh and that he's t going to continue looking at this. He says, what are some of the things he says that he has? He was circumcised the eighth day. Well, nothing really special for him about that. His parents did that. Okay. But he's basically saying, from my earliest point in life, I've been a good Jew. I've been, I was taken by my parents to the to the t tabernacle, and I was circumcised. Then he goes on to say, if that wasn't enough, he goes, I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm born a Jew, is what he's saying. I'm not one of those people who chose to be a Jew. He goes, I'm special. I was born this way. Not only was I born this way, he goes, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what does that mean to us? Not a whole lot, unless you know your Bible. Benjamin is one of two favorite sons of Jacob, being Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin is part of the tribe of the southern tribe of Judah. It was the one that stayed between Judah and Benjamin, the tribes that stayed the longest as a kingdom before they were sent into captivity. So he's going, hey, I'm a Jew. I was born that way. And I'm, by the way, part of the 
the tribe, the one that the one that Jacob loved, you know, who stayed who stayed faithful to God for for a lot longer than everybody else did. Matter of fact, the first king came from his tribe. Saul was a Benjamite. So he's going, and he was named after Saul. You know, so it's, you know, he, he's saying, I, I'm really special. And he says, by the way, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he was raising up fast amongst them. He, he had a reputation. He goes, as far as the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now, most of us as Christians think of Pharisees as really bad people. And unfortunately, many of them were. <laughs> they used the law and twisted it and, and tried to make themselves look good and twisted it. But not all Pharisees were like that. Many of the Pharisees truly wanted to follow God. And as far as Paul was concerned, he was truly following God. He wanted to follow God. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't twist all the twisted into being blameless, but he wanted to do what was right. And in another place, we're told that not only was he a Pharisee, he was taught by Gamaliel. Gamaliel in history is the third greatest teacher of all time for the Jews. And Paul's saying, you know, I got, taught by, I got taught by the best of the best. You know, I had, let's see, maybe we would consider a Harvard education. I went to the big school. I went to uh, Princeton. I went to, you know, some, let's see, what's the big school in the east? You know, huh? Yeah. yeah uh, you know, I, 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 went, I went to one of these big schools. I, 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 am, I am a big shot. I, I've got the best education. He goes, concerning... The, the zeal, I persecuted the church. I was, so, I was so standing up for God that I was willing to kill the, these, these rebels that were leading people away from God. You know, so he's building this case up. You know, and he's, he continues on here. He's touching righteousness. It was blameless. He goes, but what things were gained for me, what things I counted for gain, I count now as loss for Christ. Paul says, all of that stuff, all that stuff I could tell you that I did is worthless. Now, have you ever been around somebody who thinks they are the best thing that's ever hit, hit town, hit, hit the church, hit, hit your workplace? You know, they're, they're all of that and then some. <laughs> you know, Paul says, I was that kind of guy. I was, I was, I was it. I was, I was the best. You couldn't do any better than me. And he goes, and then I found Jesus. <laughs> I got involved with Jesus, and Jesus showed me that everything I did didn't matter. Our memory verse, that we are saved by grace, not of works. You know, and when you start sharing the gospel with people, you're going to hear all kinds of people saying, well, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a good person. Well, how good are you? <laughs> you know, how good are you? And I've shared with a group we're doing this Saturday evangelism class. You know, it's funny when I go out and I'm at the prison, I ask guys, are you a good person? You know, every one of them have said, yes, I am. <laughs> every one of them. doesn't matter who I talk to out there. They're all good. Okay, even if they know they've done wrong and deserve to be in prison, they still will consider themselves a good person because they know people that are worse than them. And that's our standard as humans, isn't it? I'm a good person. I know lots of people that aren't as bad as me. Somehow we never look at the people that we think are better than us. Yeah. And Paul's saying, you know, I, I, if you want, to count, you want to count righteousness, you want to, mark, you want to checklist, <laughs> I've got the checklist. I know so many Christians that have a checklist. Well, I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I pray. I give, I give my money to, the, to God. I, I, try to, I try to tell one person a year about Jesus. <laughs> You know, have their little checklist. And you know those checklists, those things are good. 
It really is. It's good to come to church. It's good to be taught. It's good to learn more about God and be, be built up by the body. doesn't get you into heaven, but it's a good place to be. It's good to follow the Ten Commandments and be obedient to it. doesn't get you into heaven, but there's good consequences for each one of those actions. If you go out murdering people, eventually you're going to end up in jail or, and or executed. Now, so it's a really good thing to be obedient. Thou shalt not murder. It's a really good thing to do. Thou shalt not steal. It's a really good thing to do. People, even if you don't go to jail and people know you're a thief, they don't trust you. So it's a good thing not to be a thief. But it doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't do anything for your walk with God. And Paul goes, he goes, I count all these things as lost, but for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. What is he comparing it to? Not the rest of the world. He's comparing it to God. You know, when you look and you compare yourself to God, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. When you put yourself and compare yourself to God, you end up seeing that you're not very good. You, know, you can be the best person you can possibly think of in all of, the, all of history, and if they are compared to God, they're not good. When we compare ourselves to God, we will see that we're sinners. Even when we've been walking with Christ for 46 years. <laughs> and we look and say, I'm still a sinner. Am I better than I was year, decades ago? Yes, I hope I'm better than I was decades ago. But I'm still a sinner deserving hell. Each one of us are in that same place. And without Jesus, we're nothing. The good news is he has a gift for us of salvation. Jesus died on the cross so that he could pay our sins. So that he could walk in the courtroom of heaven where we're guilty and be our advocate. There's a song that, that I've, I listened to. It's called One Drop of Blood. And it talks about how people will stand before God and they're guilty. And how Jesus walks in and says, I paid for it in one drop of blood on the scales reverses everything, reverses all the guilt. And God says, okay, sins are gone. You've got the righteousness of Christ, enter in. Now, when we get to heaven, the only reason we get into heaven is because of the blood of Christ. The only reason. Now, the rewards are totally different. When we get to heaven, we'll be rewarded. That's different altogether. That's what we let Christ do through us. But to get into heaven is strictly a gift of grace of what Jesus has done. It's also a gift of grace when we get through rewards because it's what has he done through us. And he's going to give us rewards for it. But Paul says, everything I've done, all these good things. And he goes, I used to be great. He goes, I was a young Pharisee. I was in the Sanhedrin. I was in charge. I was persecuting the church. I was helping to purify the, the Jewish religion. And then God got hold of me. God got hold of me and showed me it was nothing. Do you realize that whatever we do is nothing? Whatever we don't do is nothing. <laughs> it's all what we let him do through us. And it's all because of his grace. And we've defined grace many times. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We get heaven. We get to be children of God by accepting that gift of grace. We get to spend eternity with the Father. Oh, the grace of God. And then the mercy is we don't get what we deserve. We don't get hell. If we accept the gift of Jesus Christ, we don't get hell. We don't get punished for everything that we do wrong. And you know what? That's the really good news, isn't it? 
How many times have you done something wrong and God's given you mercy? He didn't give you what you deserved. Have you ever met somebody or maybe said it yourself, unfortunately? I just want what I deserve. You know, I don't want what I deserve. If I got what I would deserve, I'd have been in hell many decades ago. Because that's what I deserve. That's what everybody in the room deserves. That's what everybody listening on the internet deserves. We deserve hell. And God in his mercy sent Jesus to die for us. And Paul says, I, when I compare everything I've done to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, he goes, I count them but dung. Everything he was piling up, saying, this is everything I've done, just take it out to the trash heap and throw it away because it's all, all it's worth. You know, get the shovel out and get rid of it. Dung. We all know what dung is. If you have animals, you're used to having to clean up after your animals. This is what he's talking about. He goes, it's just worthless. Totally worthless. Everything that I can do before God is worthless. And you know, we kind of realize that too, because how many times have you met somebody and all they want to do is brag about how good they are? Usually they don't want to listen to anybody else. They've got all the answers. Nobody else could possibly have anything worth saying to them. You know, it's really funny though when you see it and they're not at the top of the heap. You know, they're somewhere in the middle or the bottom of the heap, and, but they're the greatest thing that ever happened to, you know, that you, every, greatest thing you've ever come across. They have all the answers as they're broke. They'll tell you how to get rich and famous, but they don't have any money themselves. They'll tell you how to be the best person in the company, and nobody wants to work with them. You know, they'll tell you how to fix anything and everything, and all their stuff is broken. You know, we, we all know those kind of people. Hopefully we're not one ourselves. But this is what Paul's saying. Now look at what I've done. And when I compare it to God, it's, it's worthless. It's dung. That I may win Christ. I don't want anything of myself. I want Christ. I want all of him. You know, in our study on evangelism yesterday, we we're talking about uh, how sometimes you can ask somebody, you know, when they go, well, I just believe that when you die, it's all over. A good question for them is, what if you're wrong? <coughs> what if you're wrong? What if, the, what if you're wrong and there is something after you die? You know, most of the time, they'll turn it back on you. Well, what if you're wrong? Well, I have an easy answer for that, and I've shared it with you guys before. If I'm wrong and there's nothing after this world, I've lost nothing. I have had a very enjoyable, peaceful life with God. Has it been all roses and, 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 and everything? No, there's been a lot of thorns and hard times, but you know, just the peace that God has given me through all of that, I have lost nothing if this is all there is. But because of how great he is in this world, I know that his promise is true in the future. He's, true, he's been true in this life to give me peace that passes understanding. He's been true to give me strength to go through the problems. I know that I can trust him in the future. But even if, I, even if there isn't, I've lost nothing. And then I can turn it right back on them. What if you're wrong? What if there is something in the afterlife? You're looking at hell. No. All you have is this life that you're probably not very happy with. And in reality, most people outside of Christ are not happy with this life. They may put a show on that they're happy. They may try to pretend, well, I've got everything. I've got, I've got the 20 cars in the garage and the, the boat and the tennis court and the pool and the 100-room mansion. And, you know. But you know, most of them are not happy when it really comes down to it. And if you don't believe me, just pick up any of the... Uh, rags about the different actors and, and, and uh, sports people who 
are into drugs and alcohol because they've got everything it would seem and yet they're not happy because they don't have God. They'll put on a face to everybody around them that they're happy, I've got everything, but they're really not. So for us, when we can win Christ, him be the center of our life, and he says that I be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is, but having that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which Christ is of God by faith. The righteousness of God. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first thing that happens to us is we are justified. Big word. We use it around church all the time, and very few people understand it. Justify God from the court of heaven declares you perfect. Declares you perfect. The thing I like to use that as an example that we can really understand is if you're filing for bankruptcy and you stand before the bankruptcy court and he slams the hammer down and says you're bankrupt, you don't know those you don't know those debtors anything anymore, because the court said you don't. Now it's not a very good way to get out of your debt. It's not a biblical way to get up, but you understand the point I'm talking about. The court declared you don't owe anything. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and He comes into your life. God says, you're perfect. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect righteousness. So that when you stand before God, what does he see? He doesn't see that sinner that's clothed in his filthy rags of right, uh, righteousness. He sees his son's righteousness. And, you know, think about this. How many people would show up in front of the President of the United States are going to have a personal interview with the President of the United States with Blue jeans with holes all over them, cut off, flip-flops, and a, and a tank top. <laughs> you know, and I'm talking about a planned visit, not just you happen to see him cross in the park or something. You know, this is how we would want, you know, this would be the honor we would give the president. We would put on the best clothes. If that's the best clothes you had to be, then that's what you would do. But you'd put on the best clothes that you could find. And, and some of these people would probably made sure you had something decent to wear in the picture op, photo op with the president. And yet, we want to stand before God dressed in our own righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is filthy rags. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? How little respect do we often give God? God, I'm just going to do what I want because you'll forgive me. Hopefully you've never said that, but I've heard many people say that. I can do just whatever I want because God will forgive me. You know what? It is true. God's going to forgive you. There's going to be consequences for what you do. There's always consequences for sin. Even when God forgives us, there are consequences for sin. And you know, most of the time, they are not instant. You know, we've talked about this. Somebody trying to lose weight, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're eating a dozen donuts. If a dozen donuts all of a sudden showed up on their hips and their thighs, you know, eat a donut, boom! <laughs> uh, they would stop eating donuts very quickly. Okay? But... Just like when we eat that, it doesn't show up until days, weeks, months later. Oftentimes, the consequences for sins don't show up until days, weeks, months later, maybe even years. You may be paying for a sin years later that you've done, especially when you've got people who won't let you forget it. You know, uh, 80 years ago, you did this to me, and I'm just not going to let you forget about it. You know, 50 years ago, you did this. 20 years ago, you did this. Last week, you did this. 
We got all of us have friends <laughs> that do that to us, don't we? They don't want to let you forget what you've done. And we make light of that, and that is kind of you know, a light side of sin, but how about if you go out and commit fornication and end up with AIDS? That's something that's going to affect you for the life, for the rest of your life, just because of one moment of, of pleasure. Go out to, to steal because you're so hungry and end up going to prison for a decade because you just felt you had to do that. Consequences for sin. Some are very serious consequences. Some are not all that serious, but can be annoying. We want to be looking to apprehend Christ. Have him come in with his righteousness. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and be made conformable unto his death. Now this is a list of things you probably aren't looking at desiring yourself that I might know the power of the resurrection. That one's one we want. Jesus died for our sins and rose on the third day, given victory over death. He's promised us victory over death. Now, and I shared with you, I used to tell people when I was a teenager and a young adult, you know, the worst you can do is almost, almost kill me. Why? Because if they killed me, I'd go to heaven. If they almost killed me, I had to suffer. You know, this is what Paul's saying. I want to know the power of the resurrection. How much boldness would you have for Christ if you really understood the power of the resurrection? If you truly understood and comprehended the power of the resurrection, how much fear of people would you have? What's the worst they think they can do you? They think they kill you and that it's bad. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, who can deliver you from my hand? He goes, our God can deliver you, but whether he does or whether he does not, we will not bow to the idol. They fully expected to die in, the, in that fiery furnace. But they also understood the power of the resurrection, saying when we die, when you throw us in there, we'll end up in, we'll end up in front of our God with righteousness and having stood for him, not having turned our back on him. Do you fully understand the power of the resurrection that will lead you to a victorious life because you don't have anything to fear? How about this other one? This one is one that's going to be, and the fellowship of his suffering. Fellowship, koinonia, close, intimate fellowship with his suffering. One of the things that is amazing, when you look in the book of Acts, every time the apostles were beat, what did they come out saying? Thank God we were worthy of suffering. We're walking close enough to him that he decided that we were strong enough to be able to go through suffering and be a good witness for him. You know, the sad thing here, and especially in America, what's, it, what's our message for people? Get saved and everything's going to be good. What a lie. You know, Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. And what do we tell people? Get saved and everything will be good for you. Everything will be happy. You'll live a good life. Well, you know, I live a good life, but that doesn't mean everything has been good. God has given me great blessing, great peace, great comfort. Doesn't mean everything has been good. I have also seen when I suffer that other people have benefited by me suffering and being able to see that God is faithful. If you don't have enough through the, through the Bible to understand that, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see all these people who gave their life for Jesus and how people responded to their, to their deaths. 
and their suffering. We have this very short-term view that if I suffer, something's wrong. Job's friends had that, so, that same view. Job, you must be an awful terrible sinner to go from the richest man in the world to absolute nothing. Boy, Job, you must be terrible. What was God's testimony of him in chapter 2? He's a perfect and upright man who hates evil. And his three, four friends, actually, because there's a fourth one that pops in at the end of this story. There's got four friends who come along and say, boy, Job, you're terrible. You know, we've been really watching you. We used to think you were really good, but you must be really terrible to have lost everything. And Job's understanding, you know, God gave it to me. If he wants to take it back, it's his to take back. Do we look at that things that way? Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. And he had both in his lifetime. He had times when things were going well. He came from a rich family. They could afford to send him to the number one school of, of, all, of all of the Jewish people away from home. So it was a boarding school. So he went to a, to a great school. He had wealth at various times in his life where he was doing well. And he just had a few problems. You know, shipwrecked three times. You know, stoned to death one time, probably dead and resurrected. You know, beat several times in most cities that he went to. And when we talk about beating, it's nothing like anything you think about. When, we, you know, when Romans talked about beating, it was a beating that left you scarred for life. Taking chunks of flesh out with the whips. You know, they, they weren't nice. They, they didn't want him doing it, and they tried to make sure that he suffered. You know, he says, you know, I want to know the fellowship of your suffering. Do you praise God when things go wrong? Most of us don't, but we're told to. In Thessalonians, we're told, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Now, most of us have no problem giving thanks when we get a new job. It's our dream job. We get the nice car, especially if it's given to you and you don't have to pay bills for it, you know, pay, pay the bill for it. You go, oh, thank you, God, this is wonderful. How about when your car falls apart and you can't drive it anymore? Do you give thanks for that? When, when you are lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, do you give thanks for that? God tells us to. And you know, the scriptures is full of lots of people who did actually thank God for their hard times and watch what they did. You look at somebody like Joseph. His brothers are so jealous of him because he has a dream that they're going to bow down to him, that they sell him into slavery. And what is their comment? Well, let's see us bow down to him now that he's a slave. <laughs> let's see this dream come true now. Gets, to, gets into Egypt, becomes the, the slave of Potiphar. Now, being a slave is not a good place no matter how good you are, but finally raises to he's in charge of Potiphar's house. He's telling all the other slaves what to do. He's, he's buying the stuff. He's, you know, he is, and as he answers Potiphar's wife, it goes, everything is in my hand. He doesn't even know what's going on in his house because he's put it all in my hands. But I'm not to touch you because she was one of the original cougars going after a very young man. Okay, it said he was very handsome. When he, when he rejected her, which of course every, everybody knows that's just what every young man would do, reject the advances of the boss's wife. You know, uh, he rejected her. She charged him with rape, attempted rape. Now he's in prison. 
He's back at the bottom of the, you know, he's worse off than as a slave. You know, at least with a slave, he had jobs to do. Now he's in a dungeon. He spends 13 years in suffering. And you know what's remarkable is the Bible never anywhere tells us that he complained during those 13 years. Now, I can imagine he probably did some complaining, but at the same time, he's holding on to this vision. God, God you told me that my brothers are going to bow down to me. I don't know how this is going to happen. I'm a prisoner in this stinking, stinking dungeon now. You know, but you know, I, do, I do believe the dream was from you and that it's going to happen. Do we have enough of God's word that we hold on to it during the hard, dark times? Or do we just throw his book away and say, well, God, you lied to me. I don't believe any of this. How important is God's word to you in the hard times. We will all suffer hard times. It's a guarantee we will suffer hard times. But those hard times are to teach us, do we truly believe in what God says? When I am suffering, do I turn to God and say, God, I don't understand it, but this is what you've said. I've told you, my favorite statement when things are going bad, God, I don't understand it, but you're in control, number one. And number two, you promised that all things work together for good. I don't see how this could be for good. I don't see how it can be for anybody's good, especially mine. But I'm just going to grab hold of this truth that you said it's for good. Joseph, in the middle of that dungeon, grabbed hold of that, that truth of God. God, you said my brother's going to bow down to me. I don't know how this is going to happen. And then we all know the story of Joseph. He gets promoted. He's now number two in all of Egypt. He's not just number two in the household. He is number two in all of Egypt. And basically, the same statement could be made. Pharaoh didn't know what was going on in the land. Everything went to Joseph. And then nine years later, after that, 22 years after he's been sold into slavery, his brothers come and bow to the number two man of Egypt. <laughs> Just happens to be their brother that they don't recognize after 22 years. All that we look at is how God will bless us. He will bless us through fellowship, and he makes us conformable unto his death. He molds us into somebody that can be acceptable. None of us, when we first get saved, are ready to die for Christ. Just isn't going to happen. The disciples spent three, years walking, four, three or four years walking with Jesus, and they weren't ready to die. Jesus went to the cross, and where were they? Cowering and hiding in the upper room. You know, waiting for the soldiers to come and arrest them and kill them. It wasn't until after Pentecost that all of a sudden they realized, he's trained us. He showed us how to do this. We have the power now to go live for him. How long have you been walking with God? Are you ready now to be able to go through hard times with him and be an example? Are you ready to give your life for him if that's what it takes to lift, for others to be lifted up? We in America have been spoiled. We have not had persecution to be a Christian. It's changing. It's changing fast. If you take a stand on the word of God, you've got people who will criticize you now pretty strongly. And it won't be long until we might face the same things the disciples faced. We might face death. We might face imprisonment for holding on to God's truth. Very critical for us to prepare our hearts and say, God, I want you to make me conformable unto your death. Give me the koinonia, the fellowship of your suffering, because your resurrection is what's going to keep me in, in strength. No matter what they do to us, God is stronger. And you know, when you've been in heaven for about 10 billion years, 
and you try to remember this miserable world that we lived in, it's not going to mean anything. One of the songs, but until then, I'll carry on, has a line in it that says, when I look back, <laughs> the things on this world that I thought were so bad will only make me smile. When I see what God did and his rewards for it. All the hard things that we go through. When we look at our, at our house and we see the rewards, oh yeah, I remember, this is when, this is when I suffered for him. Maybe I don't remember all the details, but I got this because I suffered for him. I got this one because I suffered and somebody else got saved. What are we willing to do so that somebody comes to Christ? Are you willing to die so that they would go to heaven? Paul prayed at one point, he goes, God, if I could go to hell and all the Jewish people go to heaven, I would go to hell for the Jewish people. Moses said the same thing. God, take me as long as you'll keep the people. Even though they're obstinate, you know, causing me trouble every time around, I still care for them. I would rather I go to hell and lose everything and you take them. Do you have that much love for the lost around you? God, take me. If, it would, if people will get saved, take me. Oh, there's so many missionaries out there that have taken that attitude. They've given their life so that somebody else can come along behind them and bring people to Christ because of how well they stood up for the suffering of Christ. Paul is saying, we need that. We need that. And he goes on to say, verse 11, If by any means I may obtain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I have already attained, either we're already perfect, but follow after that I, may be appreh- that I may apprehend that which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He says, Jesus has apprehended me. Do you realize that God reaches down and he takes you? Now, we like to look at it and say, well, I chose God, but you know, we love him because he first loved us. We make a choice to follow him because he loves us. Why do anybody come to Christ? Because they're shown God's love. They're shown that God loves them. You know, because most people, even, even many Christians, have a very low opinion of God. You know, have, have you ever thought of God as somebody standing in heaven with a whole bunch of lightning bolts or a hammer ready to hit you? You know, ah, oh, well, you've done something wrong. Here's your, <laughs> you know, uh, play whack-a-mole. You stuck your head out to serve God. Wham! <laughs> you know, you really laugh at that, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that that's their picture of God. If I just stick my head out from, them, from my shell, God's going to crush me. If I say, God, use me the way you want, he's going to send me the middle of Timbuktu where, no, where no, nobody wants to go. You know, the good news is God will send you where he gives you a heart to send you. These people who go out to be missionaries, they wouldn't have gone anywhere else in their entire life because God put it so heavily in their heart to do so. Hudson Taylor wanting to go to China, he was told, no, you can't go. You're not qualified. He went anyway because God told him that's where he was supposed to go. Dr. Livingston was told, don't go, and he went anyway. Many people have gone and done what God has told them to do because they can't think of anything else to do because it's so much on their heart to do it. Pastors who really love God and are called to be a pastor can't think of being anything but a pastor. They're going to be a pastor. 
Even if they didn't get called by a church, they're going to be a pastor. <laughs> you know, they may do it underneath the scope of teaching and, and everything, but they're going to be a pastor. I love the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes to God and he says, I quit talking about you to people because every time I talk, I get punished. <laughs> I get thrown into jail. I get thrown into dungeons. They beat me every time I open my mouth to give them the messages that you give me. Very next phrase, the word of the God burned in my mouth and I couldn't but talk about him. If God has called you to do something, you aren't going to, there, it will, you can't be kept from it from a herd of wild horses. You're going to accomplish what God has asked you to do. If he's put it into your heart, you will do it. Now you might do it, drag your feet slowly about it at first, but you're going to do it. You might be afraid to do it. But you're going to have the great desire that's stuck in your heart to serve God the way he wants you to serve him. And Paul says, you know, it's not that I'm already there, but I am apprehended of Christ. And then you can find, and then the last one I want to, not, brother, not, I count not myself to, to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before me, I press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of Christ. You know, the sad thing for most people is they're stuck in the past. God, I can't serve you because. And they'll give you a long list of all the things they've done wrong in, your li in their life. God, I can't serve you because I've been this way or so-and-so said something to me and I have all these sins in my life that I can't forget and can't forgive. We need to really truly understand we're apprehended by Christ. He's covered our sin with his blood. He says, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. Forgiveness is probably the greatest thing we need to do as Christians. Start with forgiving ourselves. God has already forgiven you. Forgive yourself as well. Once you've learned to forgive yourself and apprehend God's forgiveness, now you can reach out to others and forgive them. Now, the amazing thing in our world is how many times, and you might have even said this, well, I'll forgive so-and-so when they come up and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it if you haven't said it. I am so glad that God did not take that attitude. God loved us so much that God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we even had a thought of asking for forgiveness, God paid the price and forgave us. Our challenge as Christians, and this is where I'm going to end, is we need to go out and learn to forgive people. Holding grudges is not a very good thing to do. Number one, the person you're holding a grudge with usually doesn't even know you're mad at them. You know, they're going, well, so-and-so hasn't talked to me for 20 years. I wonder what's wrong. You know, and you're, you're, you're so sure that they know exactly what it is that they did wrong to you. Have you ever tried to clear the air with somebody that you've been mad at for a long time? You know, I'm really sorry I've been mad at, what have you been mad at me for? And all of a sudden you get mad at them again because they don't know what you were mad at them for? <laughs> uh, we need to learn to be forgiving. Let go of the hurts toward us and show God's love. God let go of the great hurt that we did to him. We did great harm to him in sin. The individuals that he loves so much are headed to hell. 
And if we're going to sit there and hold grudges against people, it's bad enough holding it against other Christians who really deserve to be forgiven because they're one of his children. But you know, when you hold a grudge against somebody who's not, a, not saved, all that does is confirm to them that Christians are just a bunch of, of bigoted, hard-headed, unforgiving people, hypocrites. If you can just love them, doesn't mean you say, I forgive you, you can go ahead and do whatever you want to me over and over again, but I forgive you. I'm, not, I'm going to keep a guard up. I'm not going to let you do it again to me, but I forgive what you've done. I'm going to treat you with respect and love. You know, one of the hardest things we have is that God, when God comes into somebody's life and he changes them, getting other people to forget what they were, as God has done. Have you ever met somebody who was a drunk and all of a sudden got saved and truly got off their alcohol and nobody will believe them? You know, I'm truly not drinking anymore. You know, some of those people get driven back to their alcoholism because of the way they get treated. I'm off my drugs, you know, I'm not doing them anymore. I'm no longer stealing. I'm, I'm being nice to people and people treat them in such a way that they never forgive them and allow them to grow. We want to be very careful with that. God can do miracles in people's lives. There is nobody in this world who is beyond God changing them. You know, and I've been there, I've been there many, God, I just don't see how this person could ever get saved. God, I don't know how you're ever going to reach this person. And you meet them a couple years later and they go, you know what, I'm a Christian now. You go, uh, I, don't, I, I don't really know about that. Oh yeah, I really am. I got, you know, but you know, all of us before we were saved were no better off. There's somebody out there who would have looked at us and said, you know, there's no hope for that person. Look how, look how mean they are, nasty they are, unloving they are, unforgiving they are. There's absolutely no hope for them. God has great power. No matter who it is that we look at, God can change them. No matter how hard we think they are, God can change them. Because he knows that it's just seared, it's hard on the top, it's very tender underneath. And if you've ever cracked through the surface of, of that very hard nut by talking to them, you'll find how soft and tender they are inside. It's not easy getting through sometimes, <laughs> but I've seen the roughest, toughest people totally melt before God when the word cracks into the surface and all of a sudden touches that soft, tender conscience. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we ask, number one, that they come to you, that they repent of their sins and turn to you and say, I'm sorry, God, and I want to serve you and have you in me. Lord, if there's anybody that says that prayer, I ask that they'll contact us through the Internet or through coming in on, purpo uh, on purpose to see me or a phone call, whatever it takes, they'll come and see but Lord, for us as Christians, I ask that I challenge. If there's anybody here that just wants to have God touch you, bow before him now and repent of your hard, unforgiving heart toward yourself and others. If there's anybody that you know that you've had anger and disappointment on, ask God to soften your heart and forgive, forgive you of that attitude and start loving that person. Be forgiving to them. This is a time for repentance that we want for each person in our church because revival comes and it starts in the church. Who will we repent and be able to reach out to?
it's time to ask forgiveness. Lord, if there's anybody in this church that needs to pray that, I'm asking right now that you'll pray that. Just say a simple prayer similar to, Lord, I have been full of unforgiveness and hatred toward these people. Help me learn to just love them. Give me forgiveness in my heart for them and forgive me for my attitude toward them. And then the final challenge is go out and tell, talk to that person. Ask them to forgive you as well. And Lord, we just thank you. We're going to end here. We're going to have this day and be a great day and enjoy, enjoy the rest of this day. In your son's name, amen.